This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Great. Hello, everybody. Uh, you're very welcome to today's seminar at the Transitional Justice Institute. Um, my name is Catherine O'Rourke. I'm TJI director. I'm also uh, convening the seminar series on WPS of 20 uh, to reflect on 20 years of the WPS agenda, uh, its successes and limitations and future potential. Uh, this is the fifth in our series. Um, hopefully some of you have made it along to the others also. Um, and just to make you aware that the other seminars which look at uh, queering WPS, WPS and conflict related violence against women, uh, women mediators and masculinities, they're all available now uh, to podcast at the seminar series website, which is ulcer.ac.uk forward slash WPS 20. And I encourage you to go have a look at the seminar series website because in addition to the podcasts, uh, you'll also see our plans for um, subsequent uh, our next se seminars which will be looking at um, and, and indeed next week we have one looking at local perspectives on 1325 of the WPS agenda. So I hope you'll continue to join us. Um, so today's seminar we're really pleased to have uh, Professor Christine Bell join us and she's going to talk about WPS and peace agreements and uh, indeed it's I think it's fair to say that we couldn't really find um, somebody better informed to, um, to to tell us about the sort of impact that WPS had on peace agreement practice um, and in terms of the overall seminar series um, I think one of the appeal one of the appealing things about peace agreements is that uh, compared to some of the other themes uh, peace agreements actually are a relatively clear indicator of uh, whether or not the agenda is having an impact and what sort of impact it's having on peace building um, and Christine, as I say, is very well placed to tell us about that because with her team at Edinburgh, she has uh, developed the PACS peace agreement database um, where they've compiled uh, all the available peace agreements since 1990 um, and, and indeed have looked specifically at this question of uh, how gender has featured and evolved through those peace agreements. So we're very excited uh, to hear more about her findings and very pleased to welcome Christine. Um, Christine Bell is Professor of Constitutional Law at Edinburgh. She's also director of the Political Settlements Research Programme, which has developed the Peace Agreement Database, PACS. Uh, she's also a close friend of the TJI, indeed one of our founding directors. Um, so it's always a pleasure to have her back. Uh, Christine's going to talk for about 40 minutes. Um, we'll then have Q&A, um, and you have the option with the Q&A either to raise your hand and use the microphone, uh, or you can also use the chat function uh, to write a question and, and we'll read it. Um, and uh, with that, Christine, I'll, I'll pass over to you. Thanks, uh, pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and thank you very much to TJI for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm a bit sorry it's just remote, um, uh, but also um, just take the opportunity to congratulate TJI on the series, which uh, we've all been following on podcasts and uh, in person. And uh, I think it's great to see the forthcoming anniversary being marked in this way. And TJI is just, um, I still am very proud of my association with it um, because I think it just is uh, the world's foremost centre around 
gender and um, peace processes, etc., um, playing such an active role. Uh, so today, as Catherine mentioned, I'm going to talk about um, sort of what we know. It's a little bit data focused, but I'm sort of trying to raise it towards the end. Um, uh, and I'm trying to do two things, I think, give you a sense of a peace process practice, how it has evolved over the last number of years, um, and how the place and role of women within it has evolved. Has evolved uh, and then sort of show at the end what I think is really quite a changing global and local context in many peace process situations. Um, some of the unknowns that raises, you know, as we enter sort of the next sort of decade or marker for for the UN Security Council 13, Resolution 1325 and the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Uh, so the, um, we have, as Catherine mentioned, collected data on peace agreements. The peace agreements are just texts. They may or may not be implemented. Um, and our, but our purpose with them is not so much to compare one document to one document, but to try to understand the agendas that armed actors, states and civil society try to create and create together, making commitments that they think will take them out of conflict, how they publicly document those matters. Um, but in ways we're more interested in trying to have some comparative frame for processes and our data and our definitions are deliberately broad to try to understand how processes evolve. Uh, and in fact, one of the most interesting things is just how slowly and iteratively they evolve over time. Whereas I think when I started this work, uh, my focus, like everyone else's in Northern Ireland, was on this idea that we could get this one big peace agreement and then that would somehow bring peace. I think all these years on in Northern Ireland, people see that very differently, but also across the world. Peace agreements are seen as much more as roadmaps to the future than as contracts and roadmaps that then need to be developed. The road in front of you needs to be um, rebuilt before you get to walk on it. Uh, so, but just in what has been going on, it's always really good and particularly in difficult times like this, to say that the practice of trying, there's really three ways to end a conflict. Um, there is to, you know, and assist conflict be ended. You either just wait and see what happens and who wins. And of course, um, uh, that's unpredictable. Uh, the strongest parties win, not the ones with the best agenda for the future. Uh, or you intervene to try to help one party win. Uh, and we've seen that that is often leads to unpalatable results. Or you try to engage in the messy business of diplomacy and negotiating compromises to end the conflict. And while we tend to focus, I think also as academics and practitioners, on all the ambiguities and things that are not useful about compromises, um, and we see compromise not always a great thing, particularly if it compromises on norms like equality, um, actually the human rights and equality outcomes of the third option are usually more palatable than the human rights and equality outcomes of the first two. And that really is, a, is my starting point. But the practice has been quite um, useful in terms of ending conflict. Uh, through 2014, there was a year-on-year -year reduction in conflict from 1990 on. And um, those figures were just by the conflict in Syria alone, hence the photograph. And while these um, processes were very good at in ways ending the immediate face-to-face -face violent conflict, 
they were less good at renewing, establishing a positive peace. And of course, that has gender implications in terms of the forms of violence that women suffer, their socioeconomic position. So they deal with direct violence, but generally aren't so good at dealing with structural violence. Uh, the scale of the practice, I think, is bigger than anyone realises. Um, we have on our database now over 1,800 peace agreements, tracing through from early stage, how to get the talks agreements, the framework or comprehensive agreements, through to implementation agreements. That's in over 150 peace processes, multiple peace processes, sometimes in one country. Uh, just by way of people who are interested in doing more research or, or exploring this data in the future, we have everything up on a peace agreements database. The website's just www.peaceagreements.org. And um, you can see in this search mechanism here, I don't know if you can see my arrow, but there's a specific database dealing with gender. And in around a month, we have a really cool little app coming that I'll make sure Catherine circulates, which also lets you know not just what gender provisions are included, but what strategies women um, undertook to get them there and what type of outcomes they had. Um, this is the search interface, which is quite intuitive. Uh, in the main, um, we have focused on, these are handshake moments, I like to call them, um, of uh, women, of, of main comprehensive peace agreements. But when we look at the data, the picture is a bit different. We've classified our agreements into ceasefire agreements, pre-negotiation agreements, that's how the parties get to talks, Substantive agreements that only deal with some of the issues, more comprehensive agreements up the ladder towards implementation, and then what we call renewal agreements. These are often very short agreements where parties have moved back to violence, just come to the table again saying we recommit to what we recommitted to before. I think what you can see very visibly from that is that the comprehensive agreements that are in the handshake moments of the slide before are exactly actually the smallest bar. And in fact, it takes an awful lot more time and energy and agreements to get into talks and implement what you've agreed after, before and after that moment. So in other words, when we look at comprehensive agreements, we just only look at one tiny slice of the moment, peace process. Um, over the years from 1990, the pattern of peace agreements have um, paralleled the scales of conflict which in ways is not surprising. If you have more conflict, you have more peace processes. Um, and whenever we just looked at when and how do these women, when and how do these agreements mention women at all? And I realize this is, um, this seems like a very trivial thing in ways, just any mention of And I wouldn't claim that that's a gender perspective. And in discussion, we can talk about what a gender perspective in a peace process or peace agreement would be. But what I would say is it's really hard to imagine any gender perspective having been adopted in the talks if there's no specific consideration of women or mention of them in the peace agreement text at all. So we sort of say this provides at least some um, very baseline evidence of whether any sort of gender perspective was adopted, although, of course, the idea of a gender perspective goes much broader than just whether women get mentioned or not, or equality issues for women get mentioned. But taking that very baseline measure, I mean, the results are sort of surprisingly stark. They do show that 
references to women have increased over time. And in fact, references to the specific of violence against women have increased over time. I've drawn in two lines, one which is in 2000, when 1325 was passed, and one in 2008, um, where uh, uh, there was a big flurry of resolutions um, requiring peace processes and agreements to deal with violence against women specifically. And there is some evidence that both of those resolutions had an impact in that translated into more consideration to these issues in peace agreements. Uh, Catherine and I did an earlier disaggregation of the data, um, which showed also that agreements where the UN was involved did slight, do this slightly better, had a slightly higher rise than other forms of agreement. Um, what's interesting then about where this happens across the process is that it often, um, around 40% of agreements that are comprehensive have some reference to women, but the numbers are really very low for ceasefire and implementation agreements. Um, so I wanted to think a little bit about why that might be and to understand a little bit about what are the issues um, at each stage of the process. And this, of course, idealizes a processes that are a bit more backwards and forwards and messy. Um, and to understand what the obstacles are for women, because I think we have quite strong mantras now, I would call them coming from women, peace and security discourse around inclusion of women. Um, that often is this based on an idea if women are just somehow at the tail of women's equality. What we're really saying through this data is that being at the table for comprehensive talks is not enough. The pathways are created before that point and the issues are set before that point. And then often women are excluded again at the implementation stage. And that was actually a strong experience in Northern Ireland as well, that there was not the same level of inclusion when it came to put these deals back together again and things like the St Andrews Agreement. But the pre-negotiation phase, what, what is this? Well, this is really where parties negotiate and experiment with whether they're going to enter into talks. They typically all try to set preconditions. Um, often those preconditions relate to trying to say what status they're going to enter in the talks. Parties try to win, um, defeat and victory in the preconditions they insert. And also a critical issue is when to have a ceasefire for non-state armed groups. Calling a ceasefire in ways involves playing your biggest card first and is a moment of critical risk for the group in terms of whether a political process follows at all. Um, these processes are typically completely secret. Um, often the armed actors don't even want their bases to know that they are talking. Um, but while most mediators will tell you that they really, really want to just negotiate the ceasefire and then have a much broader process for the talks, in fact, they're often not able to do this because groups will not move from conflict without seeing what the agenda, negotiating the agreed agenda for the talks are. And those agendas include some things and leave other things out and become critical to the types of plans the talks on. In particular, um, there's a way of negotiating um, peace processes, which wasn't used in Northern Ireland, which is to try to create a temporary part sharing structure, which sets up a set of interim transitional arrangements. And those really sketch out what the ingredients of the transition will involve. They really 
about about their own health. The reality is that it's the armed actors who mostly get to these talks and very much the political military elites, and they're nearly always entirely male. Even if women are at them, issues like sexual violence as a ceasefire violation can be very difficult to raise for women at the talks, particularly if they're local women. Um, and often a gender-friendly um, um, mediator is really, really critical to whether there's any sort of um, sense to the wider social agenda of the talks included in the framework. But the agreements are really, really important because they control um, what humanitarian relief and delivery will take place, where armed groups will have access, they'll decide what is a ceasefire violation if something like sexual violence isn't included, um, it will be monitored by any ceasefire monitoring group, um, that it will control who's considered a combatant and who's considered a civilian, critical for women, um, and it will also frame what is understood as the conflict and therefore start to preset the types of things that are understood to be solutions to the conflict. Uh, so the pathways do translate then into any other talks that follow. At the level of then if parties to get into talks, um, often at this point parties are new constitutional and structure of the country, even if they don't talk terms, and they usually set up broader processes and transitional mechanisms to undertake the pieces of reform that are needed to get from a situation of conflict to one of some form of governance and stability. The issues for women, I hear, think are here. Who is there? Are they there? Are they there? Data. They're really uh, where women can have their agenda. The agenda is really now caught up with the idea that pushing for presence is not enough. Um, the question is really what influence do you have at the top? And there are difficult issues here. Um, we know from some of the best peace agreements that them, and I think what else an example for this is some um, for want of a better word, input around issues that are critical for women across alliances. Um, however, women, of course, just like men, have a range of political positions even on women's issues and also on the substantive issues of the conflict um, and reflect all political positions as well and how you sort of balance that and enable um, a distinctive sort of women's agenda in the talks is really, I think, still something that's uh, complex to negotiate within the talks and something that's complex to negotiate among the women's sector. Um, how uh, so the issues that are raised I've set out there, how women frame a common agenda. The key issue that has been no sort of personal battle of mine is that often really the balance of power controls a lot of what we might understand as the sort of marketplace of the talks process. Um, some parties are viewed critical to keep on board 
um, are viewed not as critical. Some issues are off than others. Um, those issues and those groups won't necessarily um, And often what controls the power arrangements really is the form of power sharing agreed because that will set up um, a government that works in a complicated way. Um, and that's often where I think there is room to argue for women's quotas, etc. But it is a very technical and complex issue. And I can return to that in questions if you're interested. Um, for women, the importance of this stage is that the agenda includes them and their issues, that the talks process includes them and their voice in some way, um, that they do win some role in the reform processes and transitional mechanisms where the process often will open up beyond the parties to the conflict. Um, and it's important the agenda includes women, it's important that they win some sort of participation in the ongoing broader structural reform issues that will unfold. And in situations where sexual violence has really been a big issue, um, it's, it's very important that sexual violence finds some way to be discussed. There are measures can be put in place. Moving on then to implementation stages. At this stage of a process, people roll out all the processes they've agreed to, including the reform session. But often we call this the implementation stroke renegotiation phase of a process because parties um, never reach a Damascus Road, in my experience, conversion moment where they suddenly say, well, really, we are all for peace now. They often really trying to just shift their tactics from the battlefield to the negotiations process. And therefore, We've agreed things, they don't necessarily stop at that, they try to claw back a bit what they've agreed to. It's also really typical that conflicts have more than one armed actor and that what, what political scientists call spoilers appear, trying or outbidders, people who try to make political capital out of opposing the peace process. And if they successfully destabilise the process over time, negotiations often widen to try to bring them inside the tent, as it were. So um, we end up with this jargon, but tent widening often happens. Um, and that often requires new concessions and compromises that become overlaid on the first ones. Uh, and we see that in a lot of processes. You can see it very graphically in Afghanistan at the minute, where there's a sort of overlaid process with the Taliban who were excluded from earlier phases of talks and agreements and establishing government. Uh, but it causes a lot of complications and new deals. Um, also, there will be new stumbling blocks and unresolved stumbling blocks that are difficult to implement. Uh, the issue, I think, the sort of challenges for women at this stage are um, keeping women included. Um, often the process and I don't think we're really quite clear on the reasons for this, but often as side armed actors or side groups and deals are done, they're seen as side, and therefore everybody rushes off into a tiny narrow group again, rather than convening the type of consensus that has maybe carried comprehensive agreement over the line. Um, also at this stage, if women have been successful in their agendas for change, they'll be involved in transitional reform processes on public bodies, um, Monica, who I think I saw appear 
uh, eventually became head of the Human Rights Commission. Um, and those that multiple hat issue is a challenge for all civil society at an implementation phase. Um, in many ways, if they've been successful, but it also leaves people um, very thin around really keeping on top of monitoring and advocating around um, whether implementation is happening and dealing with the core issues it should deal with, including issues that are very important to women. So the importance, I think, for women and women's struggle at this point are for places in implementation bodies, for ongoing influence over ongoing talks processes, and seeing some real sort of embedding of social and economic and civil and political rights. Um, about a year and a half ago, we tried to sort of dig into where we were trying to understand how implementation happened and where gender issues were translated in. Uh, and we found that only 7% of agreements signed um, in the last number of years referred to the specific manner of implementation of gender provisions. So implementation of the gender provisions itself doesn't get much attention. Um, 25 agreements, which when you think of our numbers is not very many, discussed the role of women's involvement in implementation. Um, five cases involved a new implementation body, which is required to include a designated quota of women or include a named woman. And some promoted the inclusion of women's organisations on commissions, and others included broad references to a gender perspective. Uh, and we found only 16 cases for women's group were signatories to the agreement, um, which indicates that they would have some role in implementation. So again, a little bit like our ceasefires data. Um, women, even where women and women's issues were quite present in the comprehensive agreement, that sort of fell out again at implementation stages. Uh, I've, I'm not going to read through that, but um, I think Catherine can make the slides available. Um, but we tried to trace through, um, the issues that Section 1325 specifically addresses should have a gender perspective, which include constitutional change. Um, and these are the figures for those. Uh, 25 agreements referred to constitutional change for women and what types of references they incurred. Interestingly, where constitutional change happened, um, the figures were really quite good for whether those commitments were translated into the constitutional text. So it was quite interesting to me that if you managed to get a commitment in a peace agreement through equality being part of constitutional text, that often does follow. We trace through the actual constitutional text. Um, so 13 of those cases where the, where the constitution was changed, the recommendations in the agreement were included. Um, and uh, 42 of the agreements mentioned gender quotas in the legislature, and that was implemented in two thirds of the cases. So some of these sort of quite concrete references are things um, which need to um, be taken forward. Uh, that's a little diagram which will close that. I wanted then to mention, as I said, I would do at the end, um, really how this context is changing. So, one of the things uh, we started realizing we were coming across more and more, so very localized. Agreements. Some of them are what we would call intercommunal agreements dealing with um, 
inter-community conflicts at a very local level. Um, for example, in South Sudan, these are often around cattle raiding, etc. But the parties to them and the conflict issues of the wider conflict are being dealt with in these sites. And if you want to, for example, um, provoke conflict with a neighbouring community, um, killing one of their cows, some of their cows is a really key way to do it because they're so valuable. Um, and uh, we've also found, you know, complicated shifting sands of ceasefires where whether these are peace-oriented ceasefires or not is very complicated. Um, some of you will be familiar with the types of bread for surrender agreements of the Syrian state with local groups in Syria. But also in Libya, there's often small armed groups who maybe command only a hundred or a couple of hundred men who form really shifting alliances where they agree with peace to one group better engage in war with another. So they're both peace agreements and war agreements at the same time. Um, some of them quite chilling to read. Um, and in others, you have intercommunal peace processes with peace conferences that are really in and of themselves, almost kind of forms of reconciliation and action. So we started to collect these. And as many of these same contexts, Somalia, Afghanistan, South Sudan, have seen the national peace process sort of fade out of sight. There's certainly been a lot more interest of, for example, donor communities. Can they be together? Um, and what people wanting to understand what is it that they do? But there also was a gender interest in this because there was a perception that while it can be very hard and slow to get women up to the top levels of the UN to be a UN mediator, that women, in fact, are absolutely at the cool face of humanitarian negotiations around access to food to areas, protection issues. Or, um, these local agreements often depend on what we call mid-range actors, people who do wear multiple hats, who have contacts in the community, who have contacts with the armed groups, um, and who can sort of weave between them and start to sort of sow tentative agreements, even just for humanity. UN Secretary General. Just to say that in the COVID-19 period, um, the, where ceasefires are being negotiated um, with a little bit of impetus, perhaps um, at a local level, um, these, this local practice is still of great interest. Um, insofar as we've dug into it, the results are very mixed, I think, for where and how women are included. Um, sometimes um, in one agreement, women will both gain quite significant rights, for example, land rights in somewhere like South Sudan, but also young women will be swapped as wives, as collateral for enforcement of the agreements. And sometimes those two things can happen in the frame of one agreement, quite significant rights and quite, quite significant treatment of women as chattels. And this, of course, also makes it a complex thing for Western donors who have normative commitments to quality to support the practice. We also do find women really engaged in the practice. 
um, at a local level, but we find that when it becomes solidified as a formal agreement, often traditional leaders and elders, some of whom are women in fact, but, but many of whom are not, um, take over the sort of negotiation uh, um, of the agreements and the supervision of them. So again, it's a sort of mixed picture for women's inclusion and women's influence. The other level at which we see agreements um, where women are very excluded um, is um, that often now conflict is affected by external states and actors. Um, so for example, um, the wider regional context and actors, and in places like Syria, the big geopolitical actors are often as or more significant to whether a ceasefire will be reached than um, the local actors, the local conflict actors. Uh, and often the resolution of that dimension of a conflict takes place at high, high diplomatic levels without women involved almost at all. And in fact, there was a very graphic illustration of this around the 15-year anniversary of 1325 where um, one day the resolution debate itself had the greatest number of inputs and it lasted the longest amount of time. And a couple of days later, a photograph emerged of the diplomatic level of the Syrian negotiations where there wasn't one room, woman in a room. I think there was one at the back in a room of about 40 people. So just to conclude, um, it's worth saying that a lot of agreement is resolved not really by um, reaching a final agreement, but by, in ways, building ongoing disagreement to the framework for governance. And I think this sort of shifting landscape raises some questions. Um, and some of it is, some of them are just very basic questions that have been around from the start of this kind of struggle. First of all, you know, to what extent do we just assert women's equality and really have that as a mantra? And, and very much this is the international approach that really are women there, they should be there, asserting these norms is important. Um, and at what level do we uh, engage? Do women have to engage in the political marketplace of the talks? Will mean compromise? just on the main issues on the talk, but also for women and for their agenda. To what extent can gender norms be asserted? How do we get those to connect with this elite bargaining process? We've tried to suggest that there is a form of principled pragmatism to be explored in this space, where women often have forms of transnational influence, which give them some leverage where elite bargains engage in intergroup ideas of equality, which leaves a bit of space to pressurise those agendas to open up to include equality for women and indeed for non-aligned minorities. Um, and also these processes rarely immediately embed any idea of politics as normal. Um, transition continues really indefinitely. And that means there are moments of new negotiation which create opportunities um, to, to get kind of make equality gains, often in strange and opportunistic ways. And some of the um, abortion and same-sex marriage gains of the 
um, Brexit negotiations would be an example. So there are moments of new opportunity that arise in a different way than they would in politics as usual. And this may seem an unsatisfying way to work, but this is our idea of, well, it's both principled, but it is pragmatic about taking the reality where you find it. Well, Christine, you seem to invite some further questions about the difficulties of devising shared agendas. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you wanted to say something further about that. Uh, yes, I don't know. I think, um, well, I mean, some of it I've learned from your work around often the key shared point is women agreeing um, that they that that women should be included somehow in the talks, um, and often that is that is actually a point of sort of common mobilisation, even though that seems like a very thin um, type of agreement. Um, but my sense is that it's kind of important, uh, and the women the task that women are asked to do in these talks is really really complicated because. Really, they have to figure out agreement among themselves, um, figure out a way to influence the talks that aren't designed with those issues at time, and try to bring that together. Uh, and I mean, I you you see this in practice, posing challenges to groups like the Women's Advisory Board in Syria, you know, who at the same time are are desperately trying to influence talks. Um, they come from people who align with different sides in the conflict and different groups. So having a common position even in the talks is really difficult. Um, and at the same time, they face levels of pressure and attack and responsibilities to connect to people outside the talks. And facing it all. Um, and you know, just even on human terms, uh, the kind of uh, difficulties of that is re are really are really huge. This one, I'm from Nicholas Pugh. Is there an extent to which women's groups, in asserting their narratives, have been historically viewed as a spoiler element by two equally patriarchal sides? Uh, I think I think that does happen, um, but also in some of the sort of most internationally mediated processes uh, where where there isn't much of a process at all, I would say that mediators still do play a role in feeling very cautious as to whether they can have any really role outside the armed actors. So I'm sometimes surprised by how strong that I think the caution is right. But I think there are ways to set up other modalities to at the same time gather women's input in ways that wouldn't be destructive. Um, so I think that there's different groups ex exclude. I think many of the people involved in those talks, including the mediators groups, have this focus of just we have to focus on the only issues that are stopping the process around use of violence. And so these broader agendas are seen as fine and nice, but not things the process can afford. Um, however, longer term, often these are the issues the process needs to have included. 
if the process is to have any traction and to hold. Um, so quite a good example was actually um, in the Yemen process. To everybody's surprise, in December a year ago, there was an agreement with with the Houthis around um, the Hodeida and Stockholm agreement to green ceasefires and modalities. Um, you know, and really there was um, nobody but that diplomatic process involved. There was no reference to women anywhere in any of the ceasefire terms. And it was very striking, um, given that it's almost you know, you almost would regard as de rigueur now put some sort of phrase in that referred to women because you know you're going to be under pressure if you don't. So even if it was meaningless, you would sort of expect somebody to try to include it and it wasn't there. Um, but similarly, there were just no modalities for implementation of that ceasefire. And most local people looking at it said, well, when we looked and could see that there was no way to really implement it or police it, we had a lot of scepticism about it. So. You know, one can only surmise that the space to build that in was understood not to be there. But whether maybe bringing a level of civic involvement might have been a useful pressure, I can't make a judgment in that context. But certainly in some contexts, no state or armed actor are completely immune um, from what their wider constituencies are pressing for. So um, it can often be a way for a mediator to sort of triangulate pressures to try to draw in a broader range of expectations and voices. Um, but I think I do think that more than sometimes, in particular, the international women's movement or women's organisations realise um, there it's not a case of people being hostile to women, and it's not a case of having to shout the mantras louder or just get women somehow along to the talks, but that people see themselves as under structural constraints. And unless we have a way of reassuring them that there are ways of addressing those structural constraints, we can shout the mantras as loud as we want, but it won't change things. So, I mean, I think the question makes a point in that regard. In, in your own experience, I mean, are there are there some arguments that are more effective than others when making that case for inclusion? Uh, I mean, I think there are, but, but it's not necessarily an answer I would want to totally like and accept. If you can make, if you can persuade mediators or even one of the armed groups that including your issue makes it more likely that you'll reach agreement, then your issue is more likely to be treated. So if you can think of all the arguments that say, well, you know, I think some of these arguments were employed in Northern Ireland to so saying, well, you know, if you have a debate about Catholics and Protestants and the police, it becomes, is it their police or ours? If you have a conversation about how would the police force look more like the broadly diverse community it serves, which includes on women and race and a lot of other issues as well as sectarian sectarian identity, then in ways that becomes an easier conversation, not a more difficult one. Um, so those types of arguments I think are successful, as are arguments which persuade either of the groups that something matters to their agenda or should matter to their agenda. At critical moments in all processes, unlikely groups 
will pick up on an issue and be persuaded of it. Sometimes it can be down to that they've had a personal experience of that in their lives and it's affected them, or that they do have a mobile constituency of women in their group that they want to respond to. Um, again, then, if those parties make it central to their agenda and their agenda is understood as central to the talks, that, you know, that's an argument that then says to women, fit into the box. And there's a need also, I think, for women to state what they want from the process on their own terms. So I wouldn't totally accept that. But those arguments and framing other arguments in those ways is generally um, is generally uh, uh, important. Um, I can have a really good little booklet about arguments you can mount, um, a toolkit called Better Tools for Peace that raises all the obstacles that are often raised to women's inclusion and gives arguments in response to them. And I think it's actually really good, which I wish I had it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Um, we've had another question. Oh. Yeah. I can't see it, so they flash up and then tantalizing me and then they disappear. <laughs> well, let, let me read it out to you from Hannah Davies. You referred in one of the slides to perceived civil society dysfunction. Just thinking mm -hmm. how that might also link up to external actors' involvement in peace processes, particularly states such as Russia that are very statist and suspicious of civil society in general. Does it, does yeah. this make it even harder to include them? Uh, Yes, I think it does. And, it, and strangely, I mean, I actually examined this and wrote a piece on it because I was seeing it so many different places that I thought this isn't dysfunction, there's something structural here. So um, there is a real dynamic after an agreement whereby, um, you know, whereby civil society actually finds that it's in a different place. One of the most striking places I was actually in the country when this happened um, was South Africa. So I think we think of Mandela as really lovely and pro-civil society, and we think of the ANC as a very broad-based group. Uh, but in fact, a very short number of years after the transition had happened, um, civil society were very critical of some things the ANC was doing in government, and Mandela made this absolutely blistering speech saying, who are these foreign funded people? You know, they need to go away now. We're the government. We are the civil society for the people. And civil society who'd viewed themselves as fellow travellers in many ways during the conflict were absolutely um, a sort of flummoxed. They, they were really stung by this uh, and didn't and really taken aback and by surprise by it. But you know, these types of power dynamics change. So people that were very pro-scrutiny of the government, they were in opposition, are not necessarily quite as pro when they're in power. And um, particularly if they view, you know, themselves as having been the good guys who finally got to do some good. Um, and also then just people move around. So civil society actors go into leadership positions elsewhere and funding becomes much more difficult. South Africa was a really good example of that where um, you know, everybody was funding during the conflict, but people then said, right, it's sorted and walked off. Um, so I think that that does make it much more, much more difficult. Um, and it, it means that 
and, and I think also a very surprising thing as well is, you know, often then the new governments move to set up regulatory frameworks for civil society, and some of that's just because there's been no governance of charitable giving and things like that, and they'll also be under all sorts of donor pressures around corruption. Um, but those civil society frameworks are often also about shutting down civil society and practice. Um, and in the number of laws that are passed in post-conflict periods, shrinking the space for civil society, and notoriously civil society space is being shrunk anyway. Um, but that's really, really common. So I think there are a set of structural issues that then mean it's very easy to say, well, civil society is dysfunctional. Look, this group was great for 10 years, and now it's a sort of a basket case, and we can't fund it. Um, and then that. You know, that means that the precise point where you really need to hold parties to the commitments they've made, if any change is going to happen, um, then everybody's slightly in chaos. Um, you referred in passing there to COVID-19. I wondered if you had anything further you wanted to add. I mean, it's, it's been quite interesting, really, the Secretary General's call and then the sort of, um, actually, the response by armed groups to it. Yes, well, we've been doing quite a lot of work and working with other groups, uh, collecting data around what is happening. Um, and it's a, it is it's quite complicated. Quite a lot of when we dug behind the news of so-called so ceasefires, often they were um, a, a really complicated mix of things, um, unilateral declarations to ceasefires that were really no first strike declaration, so saying, well, we'll go and ceasefire, but if the state continues to attack us, we will strike back. Some of them were time limited, like the ELN in Colombia set a time limited one until the end of April, and I think I haven't. I saw the UN Secretary General um, say, uh, chide them for not having further extended it. Maybe they have not even, I don't know. Um, and they, um, some of them uh, were ceasefires that probably would have happened anyway. So, for example, local agreement was signed in Nigeria, which centre in a, in a mediation that Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue had been involved in a long time. Um, but I think there is potential. 105 states have come out supporting this, and there probably will be something come out of the UN Security Council. So, I think even just that level of diplomatic pressure is really important. Um, and also, then I think there will be some armed groups. And there's some examples of this, some groups where um, they maybe wanted a face-saving way to move from conflict, mm -hmm. or for joining up to the ceasefire as even a way of a really small group um, saying, hi, we're, we're here, look, we're here. Um, and in fact, I, I did have somebody within, a, within an international system joke with me and said, you know, we were going, oh, we didn't even know there was a conflict there, but the fire was a group saying, here and, and we respond to this. Um, so the so the uh, the picture, I think, is not entirely negative, but it is. For example, in some countries, conflict is also ramping up yeah. um, in Syria, in Libya, um, and that's that's I think um, difficult. And in most of the places we find, we couldn't find very much evidence of um, parties really you know fast tracking their sort of actual agreement between them which might have provided the political process that would come after and that would tell us that they'd probably be short-lived 
and the COVID-19 creates a few other challenges, which is we know that third-party guarantees are really important. The military piece of ceasefires, and obviously those are very hard to implement in, in kind of lockdown scenarios. And then there's been some rumours, although in places like the Philippines, um, where President Duarte had made an overture, which was rejected by um, the sort of leftist armed group, but then they accepted it. Um, that there was an idea that it was unhelpful, the global call, because it sort of took, made it look like it was a response to that rather than a strong leader wanting the kudos from his um, input. Um, we've, we've had another question come in here, Christine, from, from Matthew. Um, do you think there is an opportunity for LGBTQ people to be more included within peace agreements? So far, only a handful of agreements seem to have touched on this area. Um, and I'm sure this has nothing to do with yeah. Matthew's next essay for my gender course. Um, <laughs> Well, there's, I mean, the, the trite answer is there's always more opportunity for wider sections of society to be included in these agreements. And the, the agreements that have worked the best, you know, even when we view them as very imperfect, have often been the ones where there were really multi-layered inputs to the process and that there were, where there was a much bigger sense of what the process was than the armed actors piece. So the Northern Irish Peace Agreement, to some extent, and the Colombian Agreement in 1990, actually, where there was a broad social movement behind it, broadening and deepening and extending what the armed groups ever agreed to, even though that was ended up imperfect. The recent Colombia Agreement, um, Burundi and Nepal. I mean, and these agreements, if you read any accounts of the process, you know there was, there were multiple inputs, you know, huge social movements behind them, very messy processes in ways, but there was depth and a texture to them that you do see reflected in the processes that followed, even though those all narrowed down in ways, uh, in, in bad ways as well. So implementation in all those cases is far from perfect, but the starting point of the agreements were much, were notably some of the best ones. Um, the LGBTQ issue, there are some references, and I'm sure if you've asked the question, you've been pouring through all 100 pages of both versions of the Colombian Agreement. Um, but the, I mean, the Colombian Agreement, I think, is the agreement that dealt the most with this issue. But then, of course, when the referendum was lost, and partly lost because of complex alliances, which included um, sort of fundamentalist church alliances, and that piece of the agreement and the whole gender diversity element was rolled back on. Um, so it just showed how vulnerable that was to, to push back and to change. Um, you know, Northern Ireland in ways has showed the, the uneven gains that are made different points through weaknesses and opportunities, and that it's quite sort of unpredictable both ways. And so, you know, early on there was the inclusion of sexual orientation in the equality agenda. And that was really because civil society mobilised around that agenda, and um, you know, equality groups consulted on: Do you want this to be just Catholics and Protestants and women, or do you want it to be everybody? Because that is going to make implementation more complicated. And the clear response back from all the groups was: We want it to be everybody. And so Northern Ireland actually had some of the first provision on sexual orientation in the equality section. 75 duty, but of course, 
the outcomes for LGBT people were very, very poor because of the mechanisms of power sharing. So again, you see sort of these diametrically opposed things happening at the same time, and then these moments of opportunity that are would be unpredictable. But it shows in some level that continued civil society pressure and movement, you know, can burst out, can be seize the opportunity when it arises, and, and by making keeping these alliances of change going. You can create for moments of opportunity. Um, is this going to be a standard thing? Um, I think it's just really going to agree. I think on our database there's something like six references to LGBT, and like two of them are negative, in the sense of banning homosexuality and things. Um, and some of them, some of them are positive. I'm always a little bit cautious generally about trying to argue that everything we want in life should be in the peace agreement. Like I'm all for everybody being included. But again, I think there is a marketplace where, you know, there's also merit to saying the peace process and particularly where it involves armed groups is just one strand of the process. And, and we need to not think about everything going into that, but we need to think about a good enough agenda. And then where else the peace process needs to happen and be supported and given a structural place. Uh, and you know, so in other words, you can laden everything, ladle everything in to the one process and the one agreement, or you can put that one process and one agreement into its place. And that actually was a little bit of the Colombian approach um, in, in the last agreement to say, well, this is just one strand in a process that needs to have more than one strand. Great, thank you, Christine. Um, well, um, so I've kind of asking everyone, Christine, um, through this series um, about WPS. Um, I suppose the what what's your sense? I mean, given your very particular perspective on um, the utility of the Security Council adopting and developing this agenda, and is there something? Useful that can be done in the future in terms of that agenda. I I feel quite ambiguous about it. Um, so would I really want it to stop? No, it's you know if norms aren't even articulated in the first place, you don't have anything to work with. So I'm not such a skeptic that I would say it should definitely stop. But there but there is a I think I do now more, and maybe it's just about where I've been, I do more um, see a kind of machinery there, and the machinery is very, you know, concerned to roll out anniversaries, to have a massive jamboree around the debate itself, states trip over themselves to say things, even all the states we think of as not that gender friendly, you know, the Russians love making statements on it, the Americans love making statements on it. Um, you know, everybody, the debate goes on for days and days, and literally the next day, nothing has changed. I think there's some interesting innovations around can we really tie budget commitments to, to these? But some of that, again, the budgets are so complex, and, and who's for what is so complex. I'm sure it can be manipulated to take a box that 30% of it somehow went to women. And then sometimes the activities supported for women. You know, are not ones that 
really will connect them into the mediation. So, I mean, I've watched and, and of course, in loads of ways, I would support all the different mediator networks happen. And I think even just sort of as a mechanism of transnational mobilization is really important. But so I wouldn't again like to come out as a complete skeptic of that. But but I but it's not connecting to who gets chosen to be in the high diplomatic level in the UN. The same sort of six men are recycled. <laughs> They're getting quite old now, so there'll be some new people. I think some innovations like the mediation support units run by mediation team, you know, is, is hopefully but again, Stephen surprising to me how much that's not a track to pull people in to the, the next generation UNSRG people. They're still brought in from a more Company diplomatic track, which means that if women are underrepresented in the diplomatic track, um, so it, the country doesn't tend to nominate its MSU member, it tends to nominate its ambassador for 30 years in some other place. So, again, you know, I think that, that, that it's unclear that some of the initiatives are actually connecting up to how decisions are made around when and how to conclude them. And just for me, I am a pragmatist, and I would really, I would let some of the um, busyness and profiling of the agenda go to get a few more results. And I think, I think also there is a level of cynicism then that the profiling is just the profiling, and it's just a machinery doing what it does, and then that somehow none of it matters. So that there may be some downsides even to the profiling, um, you know. So I'm not sure what you do. International diplomacy works the way it does. You know, the UN Secretary General's call for a ceasefire has had some effect and has created a momentum. So I so I wouldn't throw these things out. But it's hard not to get increasingly cynical as to what they're really achieving. And I think when you find yourself becoming cynical, then thinking what would make a difference is really the next question. I don't have easy answers to that, except trying to connect the agenda and the principles with some sort of idea of what the strategies and arguments are that cause change, even if that's a very uneasy conversation. Because uh, it's because it's uneasy to engage in debates and negotiation over what rights you're entitled to. That is a that is a thing we don't sort of as rights advocates think of ourselves as having that we should have to do. But there is an element of all rights have to be translated into practice and that takes political negotiation. Someone else had a question, Catherine? Yes. No, it's okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read it out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that answer. Um, it's from uh, our TJI colleague, Lena Maligan. Um, has the inclusion mm -hmm. of women in peace processes implied the inclusion of better socioeconomic rights provisions? For, for women. Uh, you referred, for example, to land rights. Analyzing the PACS data, are these rights central to women's agenda? Well, it really, really depends on the context. So, for example, in Guatemala, they were, and particularly for Indigenous women, you know, in other contexts, they're not. Um, there, there, are, there is, we do see the land rights issue in local agreements in Africa, but then I'm always sort of wonder about that. The local agreements are quite tied up with local processes, village courts, village sort of local justice processes. They either are one and the same process, or they sort of piggyback and um, use them. Um, and there actually have been 
a lot of quite interesting progressive things going on and how those processes deal with land rights um, generally. Uh, and I think I think also what can be quite surprising is in places from South Sudan to to Papua New Guinea, um, sometimes chiefs and traditional leaders increasingly are women. So it's not so again this idea that all those roles, because they were traditionally male, always are male, um, is not actually right. Um, so uh, so do, does it couple peace agreements? I think don't deal that well with socioeconomic rights and um, I don't see a huge tie up uh, with women. I think what you what you maybe do get more are humanitarian calls being responsive to gender issues where women have really been involved. So for example in Libya where you had a broad Benghazi call which involved sort of church, armed groups, local civic leaders and women's groups coming together then you get a recognition that women sort of know what they're talking about when they're talking about humanitarian relief needs and how to do it um, and, you, and you get a kind of inclusion there um, but I feel like I don't sort of see an easy tie up but I think that's more just because agreements and who participates don't quite tie up that neatly anyway. Okay. Okay, well, there's, um, I don't have further questions uh, coming in, so I think this might be a timely sort of place just to, to wrap up um, and to thank you again, Christine, for your time and your inputs, and um, thanks everybody for attending. Have you got anything you'd like to say by way of conclusion, Christine? Uh, no, just um, I'm sort of you, you get no sense of there being anyone there, and the fact yeah. that I used sound was talking hasn't helped. So <laughs> if any of you really are out there, apart from the people that ask. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope somebody got something useful from it. And um, please look at our website and our data because we've lots of really simple, nice things, including women and ceasefires guide. If any of you are working on that right now, and um, for any of you that are actually sort of practitioners in this area and doing this lobbying, um, I think you know there's our resources. There's increasing gender emphasis in the MSU guides in the UN. I've put resources on the end of the slides. Um, and uh, there's also, um, I think the ICANN materials are, and videos and things are really, really good and really good for training purposes. So just if you haven't looked at all those, I would encourage you to. Um, and then the only other thing is we have our app, um, which is coming out in about a month and we'll start tweeting that. If you see it, please retweet it. It's just a little simple thing, but it's quite cool and we're very proud of it. And it will give you easy access to information about provisions about gender and strategies and implementation results. Um, thanks.